This evening we turn in Holy Scripture to Daniel chapter 2, and we will read that entire chapter. This is the Word of God. In the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation of it. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time, because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you, for ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the Lord of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hath given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. And therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captains of Judah, that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen, and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. 
and maketh known to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter. And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. And now what follows to the end of the chapter is really our text. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay." And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall, be, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, and gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. We read that far in God's word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we considered not long ago Daniel chapter 1, and the great theme of the book that is incorporated 
in that first chapter that is taught there, that is the theme really of all the chapters that we study, and it is the theme of God's preservation of His children from defilement, the defilement of sin in this world. The chapter that we consider this evening is a chapter that advances that theme and introduces really another theme that is found in the first chapter, but also one that will be developed through the book, which is the antithesis. The antithesis concerns the spiritual difference and separation of the child of God from the world of men. That concept of the antithesis taught in many places in Scripture runs very right through the heart of the Scriptures, is a truth and a doctrine that represents or is based upon the reality, rather, that there are two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. They have different sources, they have different members, they have different goals, and they have different ends. And that reality, that truth, is what is taught here in this chapter. Now what follows from that is really what we often call as the antithesis. So there's the reality of two kingdoms with two completely different members and purposes and goals and ends. And now, now what? Well, that's the antithesis. The antithesis is that exactly because the church and the members of the church are certain people who belong to one of those kingdoms, then they will live and behave a certain way. They will think a certain way. They will look forward to certain things. They will entertain themselves a certain way. And this is a truth, really, we need to be reminded of continually as especially an applicatory service, even of the Lord's Supper. How now shall we live? This reality is brought to us with regard to a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had the interpretation of that dream by the child of God, Daniel, from God, and the reward of him and his three friends in their life. It's evident from the passage that we read that this is, however, no mere dream, no ordinary dream, but in fact this dream is a nightmare that causes the man who had it, the great King Nebuchadnezzar, a great deal of fear, terror even. And that's evident. You will notice that from the effect this dream has upon the man. We read that his spirit was troubled and that his sleep broke. He couldn't sleep. He was disturbed. He couldn't even operate till he knew what was going on. Then we look at his response. Upon having that dream, he immediately called all his counselors, all his wise men, and even the astrologers and others. You have to see it's the fear of a president, as it were, preparing for nuclear war. As fast as he can, he assembles his cabinet and all of his experts, and he wants answers from them. And then look at the fear that's implied by the impossible demand that he places upon these counselors. He knows full well that he is asking the impossible of them. He knows full well. Why does he do that? He does that because he wants to be assured that they aren't spinning a tail to him. He knows that this dream is significant. He knows it has implications. He is afraid of them. And so he must be absolutely certain that the interpretation he is given by whoever it is is absolutely certain. So he places that impossible demand on them. And then look at the threats, the fury, the rage, the rash death sentence that he places on all his counselors. Imagine, this is a man who came to power in part because of his wise use of wise men. He had assembled the wisest people in all the earth, the people who knew 
all there is to know at that time. They had assisted him in his rise to glory and honor. But so afraid is he that he is willing to execute them. They are to him worthless unless he knows the interpretation of this dream. That is, this nightmare. The reason for the king's fear is really threefold. It has to do in the first place with the visage of the image. What it looks like, we read that it's great, that is, it's massive and tall. It has excellent brightness, that is, it is unusually brilliant and glorious. That it has a terrible form. The idea there is it's, it invokes fear. It's frightening. And then it stood before him. And the idea there is it's threatening. It's oppressive. It's looming over him. It's creating that fear. And then in the second place, it was obvious to him that that image had a personal significance. When he looked at that image, that image resembled him. He could see himself in that image. And therefore, in the third place, he was disturbed by the end of that image. That human image that represented him and looked like him was destroyed and destroyed now not by any human means. It's destroyed by an inhuman means, by a stone cut without hands. Depicting, of course, as you could well imagine, he knew and why he is afraid, his own destruction by some sort of impersonal force, a threat. And he wanted to know that threat. This nightmare of Nebuchadnezzar, the interpretation of that nightmare, and what follows with regard to Daniel and his three friends is told us, interpreted interpreted for us, that we might have comfort. Even as it was a fear-inducing nightmare for him, it should be comforting for the people of God. Why? Well, in short, it explains life. It explains everything that's going on around you. But even more importantly, it teaches the sovereign power and wisdom of our God. That's what's brought up time and time again. The matter of sovereign power and wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar has power and wisdom. But God's power and wisdom is greater The comfort of the child of God is that God, we see here, is sovereign over both the spiritual realms and the physical realms. He is the God who gives men dreams in their spirits and interprets secrets, but also the God who makes all it come to pass with absolutely certain. And then sovereign over the world rulers and the kingdoms of this world, the statute represents over the lives of men Not only the godly, but the ungodly. And then comfort, because you see here the power of God's grace. Not just His power over men, His brute power, but the grace to execute all this through His own servant, Jesus Christ, who is that stone cut out without hands. So we see here again, too, the theme of preservation. When we saw in the first chapter, the preservation of, of God's people through His Christ. We consider this evening Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, and then first of all, the development of man's kingdom. The development of man's kingdom, then the conquest of God's kingdom, and then the certainty that it comes to pass. First, the development or the rise of man's kingdom. That is what's taught in the dream and its interpretation. Of course, that dream and its interpretation includes the destruction of that kingdom, but it's mainly about the development of that kingdom. That development of that kingdom in time and history. And that's brought out because the head of that statue represents none other than Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom itself. What we have, of course, is this massive image in this dream, a massive, splendid, threatening image that consists of five distinct parts, a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thigh of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. Now, in this dream, only the head is positively identified by the Lord 
through his servant Daniel, that is, that head made of gold, which we are told represents Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings, as the greatest of the kings. And then, not only him, but it's evident it represents his kingdom. It's clear that this will hold true of the meaning of the various parts of that body under the head. And true elsewhere in Scripture where kings are pictured in visions. You can never separate a king from his kingdom. He's king over that kingdom. In fact, that kingdom is his honor and his glory. It's that over which he rules. If you speak about the king or the king is destroyed, the idea is so also is his kingdom. Now about that kingdom, one of the features of that kingdom, even of Nebuchadnezzar, is that it's a worldwide kingdom. And that's brought out in a very striking way. Regardless of the geographical extent of that kingdom, the idea is that it represents a worldwide rule. You will recognize, in fact, even the imagery, the explanation that's given uses the language right out of Genesis where God gives man dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creature. How is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom described? That he rules over wherever the children of men dwell. And even the beasts of the field and the fowl of the air. And the idea is that his influence is over the whole earth. That whatever he does affects even the beasts. And it reflects the fact that he uses men, uses beasts, uses all the animals that God placed on this earth however he pleases. Uses them as slaves. Uses them as soldiers. Uses them as beasts of burden. Uses them in war. And the overall appearance represents the fact that both the king and his kingdom possess an awesome and fearful power and glory. You even see this in the description of him as he deals with his wise men in Babylon. His word holds sway. When he declares a decree, it is carried out. Even if this man should say, I'm taking my wisest men and demands of them the impossible, they will be executed instantly upon his word. We are told, however, that there will come four kingdoms, four kingdoms that will supplant his kingdom. That is, they will conquer his kingdom, even the greater kingdom, the greater kingdom of one he calls the king of kings. These kingdoms are not identified positively, but it's obvious that all the features of the first hold to the subsequent kings and their kingdoms except for two things. The metals that they are made out of and the parts of the body that they represent teach a couple of things that are brought out in the interpretation. First of all, they're inferior. They're inferior in a very important way, in a specific way, and we're told it's that they're inferior in glory and in value. And if we did not know that, we could surmise that from the metals. Gold is more valuable a possession and rare and desired than silver and so forth all the way down to iron and clay. So there's a decrease that is inferiority in value and glory. However, there's also an increase in things. Though inferior in one aspect, there's an increase in another which is in power, that is in strength, and we might add even utility. There's a development in the image. The legs are made of the strongest metal and the feet, even though we're told they have a fatal flaw, they're mixed with clay, those feet are strong enough to hold up the entire image. And it's brought out in the interpretation itself, in the, not only that, but the description. 
Silver is harder than gold, and brass is harder than silver, and iron is the hardest of them all. Take note of that with regard to these kingdoms that supplant the glorious, even more glorious kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Now there's almost universal agreement, even though they're not specifically identified, about the next three kingdoms. And that's largely for two reasons. Number one, we're going to have similar dreams and events that are recorded in the book of Daniel concerning these kingdoms. And there, they're specifically identified. And then, there's world history. If you believe this prophecy, and it is about kingdoms and the rise and fall of them, one needs only to look at history, compare it then even to subsequent prophecy in Daniel, and it's obvious. And so there's little, if any, disagreement on what these kingdoms represent. The kingdom of silver is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians that's coming, and that Daniel will even see. Daniel will even live in the rise of that kingdom. There's a diminishing of that kingdom in value and glory because it's divided up. It's just not the kingdom of one man. It's the kingdom of Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes. And then there's the kingdom of brass, which kingdom is the kingdom of the Greeks, the Macedonians and the Greeks, the kingdom of Philip, the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the kingdom of the great city-states of Greece that come into being. And then there's universal recognition that the iron of the legs is the kingdom of Rome, which technically is a republic. Even more, a diminishing, really, of the glory of a sovereign. It's a republic. And even when the Caesars are in control and in power, they rise up and they fall. They come and they go. But other than that, there is rule. Rule just like we saw with the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Rule wherever men lay their head or make their homes. Rule over all the beasts of the field. Absolute rule. Now there is disagreement about those feet made of that strange mixture of iron and of clay. I'm not going to get into all the various explanations, but as we go on, it should be evident what this represents, and then again we can look at history. The fact is, though, feet represent all the kingdoms of the earth that follow the kingdom of Rome. On the one hand, they have the best features of Rome, the iron of Rome. They have a wide, even the widest influence over all the people and all the customs and over all the laws and the economy of men. But as history shows, there will be one fatal weakness in those kingdoms. That all of that power and influence as it expands over the globe is dependent upon man, is mingled with the miry clay of man, and therefore his sin his wickedness, his passions, his desires, all are mingled in. The result will be that after Rome, there will be many kingdoms. One kingdom and king with tremendous influence. And if one holds universal rule, it's not for very long. And yet, collectively, collectively, their influence is over the whole earth in a way that Nebuchadnezzar and the way that Cyrus and the way that Caesars never could. Now there's a specific significance about that statue, which is that it's one. Well, there's five parts. And it involves kingdoms, various kingdoms. But together... It represents one single image of a human being. What we learn from the interpretation thereof 
is that this represents really all the various manifestations of the kingdoms of man as one. But collectively, it doesn't matter who's in charge. doesn't matter the geographic location of a worldwide kingdom, whether it be the Greeks or the Persians or the Romans, whether it be the United States or Russia. It doesn't really matter. It's all one kingdom. And it's the kingdom of man. It's looking at, you see, men from the perspective of God. How God sees men. How we ought to see men. When you look at these kingdoms, you'll find out they're all united. And they're united by the fact that they're all kingdoms of men. They're kingdoms of ungodly men. They're kingdoms of men over their fellow man. That statue represents the united desires and ambitions of men. Sinful man. It represents the united desire to overcome all the miseries of life, overcome the effects of death and all of its form. It represents the united desires of man to lift himself up to the heavens, to rise up and be God. The desire of man to rule over everything in this creation. Not now as man, and only man, but God. So it represents the unity of the kings and members of those kingdoms as they are all opposed to God. The kings and kingdoms of the earth are united in their hatred of God, in their hatred for God's rule and God's law, united in their hatred of God's sovereignty that often frustrates their plans. They're united in their hatred of God's judgments in the earth, God's sentence upon their sins. They're united. They're united in their fear of death. So also, they're united in their opposition to God's Christ. You see, God is represented on earth by a Christ. And that Christ has a body, a church. So it represents the united hatred against God, His Christ, and His church. Represents the reality that men, sinful man is aware of God and aware of God's rule in this world through Christ. And if you doubt me on that, go back and read Psalm 2, which speaks about what's going to happen to Christ physically, literally, when He comes. All the kings of the earth, all the rulers gather together and they say, what are we going to do with Him? What are we going to do with this fellow who represents Christ like no other? They recognize who He is. God's King of kings and God's Lord of lords. And they say, kill Him. And they think they've gotten the victory. That image represents also the development of man. The development of all the kingdoms of man under their rulers. The development of man in his opposition to Christ leading to one ruler. There are parts. And all the parts are rulers. Not just kingdoms, but rulers. But when you look at the image, what do you see? One. It represents what Scriptures elsewhere are going to call the Antichrist. Although each kingdom successfully replaces the other, yet there will be, in the things that come to pass, this dream says, one man ruling over one single power in a way that has never happened before in the history of the world. The idea is that there will be one image, one man, who includes now all the value, all the glory, and all the strength of all these kingdoms that were individual before. There will be one kingdom that combines all of their culture, all of their artistry, all of their knowledge, all of their understanding, all of their power, all of their technological prowess, and everything else. That is, it represents the development of the kingdom of man to its apex, to its climax, in everything that you could possibly imagine. Military power, 
scientific learning, medicine, law, culture, inventions, art, but then also the apex and climax of sin. It represents the fact that sin is developing. Man develops in his ways to sin. As he develops new technologies, he learns how to use them to express his hatred and opposition to God. Men now can commit adultery not simply in person, but virtually. Represents the rise to its full development of man's hatred to God. Whereas previously men, for example, may have been tentative to express their hatred, hid their hatred, now it breaks out into open, open positions, open opposition, open actions that make clear what is being done. In fact, Scripture is going to tell us, and it's coming up in the book of Daniel, that so great is this development, it's all you can see. It's as if the church ceases to exist. The church has no place in this kingdom. That Christ is, as it were, nowhere to be seen. All you can see is the image of man. But there's a critical flaw in the image. It rests upon the miry clay of man. All of it. The whole huge edifice. Oh, that kingdom, that kingdom brings together man in a way that one has never seen before. Joined all men so that all you can see is men. All men belong to that image, as it were, to that kingdom. But that's its weakness. What is that? Well, you know the answer. Because man is miry clay. That is, he's a creature. Not only that, but he's a sinful creature. Out of miry clay he came, formed by the potter. But as a sinner, back to miry clay, he will go. Back to the dust. You see that in the destruction of the image, don't you? In a very graphic way, when that image is destroyed, it's destroyed into dust. Dust like the chaff on the threshing floor, we read. That very vivid image about the reprobate. The reprobate are like the chaff. The ungodly are like the chaff, are they not? And then the wind comes and blows it away. And like dust, it's as if it's gone. You see, God don't tolerate sin. God judges sin, even the sin of ungodly man. And as the sin develops, so do his judgments. As man develops in sin, these are the men <clears throat> that will try to unite. It won't be easy. Man will unite, but it won't be easy. Did you notice that description? As you went down the image of how man forms, how man makes his kingdoms, more and more it's not simply attraction to the glory of the likes of Babylon. Where someone says, I want to be a part of that. I want to enjoy all the food and all the drink and all the culture and all the gold and the silver that belongs to that glorious kingdom. I'm enamored with that kingdom. My, just look at the exotic character of that kingdom. But more and more as you go down, it is, as we read, by beating and by bruising. There is breaking going on. That is, men are being forced to submit, forced to unite. But man is a sinner. A sinner whose sins are being judged and a sinner that makes it hard to unite. And that will be the fatal flaw of that statute. But the statute can't come down and doesn't come down on its own. It's destroyed because it's conquered deliberately by God's kingdom. We're going to consider that, the conquest of God's kingdom. Here, too, we have to remember that the focus is upon the conquest of God's kingdom, but even as we had to pay attention in the development of man's kingdom to also its end, its destruction, so also we have to pay attention to the fact that this conquest of God's kingdom happens through a certain development, a development in time and history. And this is all figured, represented, 
by another great aspect in that dream and the interpretation thereof, which is that image of stone. From the passage, we learn that there's three essential features of that stone. Number one, it's cut out without hands. Whatever stone that stone comes from, it has an origin. Whatever cuts it out is done without hands. And the idea, remember, is that it's cut. It doesn't just pop out of the mountain. It's just not a happy accident. It's cut. Something cut it. Something formed it. Something fashioned it. But it's without hands. Secondly, it comes, it rolls. The idea is it, it's cut out of a mountain. It rolls down a mountain. And it's headed straight for that image. And it smashes it in pieces. And destroys it entirely. It ceases to exist, as it were. It's carried away. It's no more on the earth. And then thirdly, that stone grows. The very same stone that smashed the image to pieces, that destroyed all those metals and turned them back to dust, then does what stones don't do. It grows. And it grows and it grows until it covers the entire earth like a mountain. It, as it were, becomes a mountain. A mountain that covers the earth. That's the dream. Now, in general, that represents Jesus Christ Himself. And, of course, just like the other part of the dream, His kingdom. You cannot separate the Christ from His kingdom. The kingdom of Christians. The kingdom of those who are saved and redeemed by Him. And it represents the conquest now the victory now of Christ over the kingdom of men. And that's the importance of this passage. In our day and age, Christians will often talk about Jesus as Savior. That Jesus came to save. He came to deliver. But how, how little is the talk that He came to smash to pieces the kingdoms of men? How many people talk about the fact that Christ long ago, had something to do with the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, and then the Medes and the Persians, and the Romans, etc. But that's what's being figured here in general. Now from the dream and his interpretation, we can see that there are really three distinct phases. Three distinct phases to what's being described with regard to that stone. The first is that it represents... God's sovereign control and wisdom, remember, His power and wisdom, are the two things that are brought up with regard to these kingdoms, the things we focus. God's sovereign power and wisdom bringing about the incarnation, the ministry, and finally the death of Jesus Christ. You may say that that's represented by the stone being cut. Cut without hands cut out of immovable, eternal stone, as it were. You say, what that's all about? You could say, well, that's about God's sovereign power and wisdom to accomplish and work the incarnation, the ministry, and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Worth noting, worth noting that that occurs during the Old Testament develop of that image itself, everything up to the feet. Interesting. In other words, that stone is, as it were, being cut, especially in the Old Testament, during the reigns of Nebuchadnezzar and during the reigns of these great kingdoms. Who is it that crucifies him? Who is it the one who seemingly has the victory over him? It's the kingdom of robe, the links of iron. But this is God's work. That's the passage. This is God's work. In the first place, it's a stone made without hands. No human hands have any Anything to do with Him. Human hands don't have anything to do with Him being here or His work or, or who He is or what He is. It's God's work. And then you, you can see that, by the way, even in this image. Does it strike you that if you and I... My point is that God is not even sovereign over the Christ, but over the statue He's about ready to destroy. That's what's being represented here. God's sovereignty over it all Christ doesn't develop in a vacuum. Christ doesn't just 
show up on earth and it's a happy accident. God's in charge of it all. Well, look at the statue. If men make a statue, how do we start? Well, we start at the bottom. We work our way to the top. If you and I were going to have a dream and make a dream and give an interpretation of, we would start down here and work, work our way up. But not this one. This one develops and comes from the head on down. God has something to do with that too. So it has to do with the sovereign work, the sovereign power, the sovereign wisdom of God over everything. Over everything having to do with the destruction of that statue and the development of the kingdom of Christ. You look at Christ. Ask yourself, how does it happen to be that He comes from the Virgin Mary? He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, but comes from the Virgin Mary. The idea that He's stoned, by the way, is that He's on the earth. He's physical. There, there's, a, there's a real physical side to Him. Why well, does that happen? Does it just happen? Is it just a mistake that you can trace his lineage back through the line of David all the way to David, then back to Abraham, then all the way to Adam? And then consider all the, the multiple times when a line was almost wiped out and God preserved it. Think of all the marriages. Think of all the economies. Think of all the kingdoms. Think of everything that's going on for God to make that happen. And then and then if that's not enough, the incarnation is the definitive act of God showing that this is a stone that's being made without hands. Even Mary, in doing justice to the fact that his nature is Mary, has nothing to do with the incarnation. It's God's work and God's work alone. Only God can accomplish this. Only God can carry out this. Only God could come up with a plan like this. And then there's the death on the cross. Look at the death of the cross. Again, it screams God and God's Christ and His power and His wisdom. There He is. Any man looks and says, it's over. It's curtains. It's done. We win. Remember, man knows what it's doing. When the kings and the rulers assembled together to crucify Him, they knew precisely what they were doing and were warned. But what actually happened in his death was principally the destruction of them all. Right there at his death. When he died and then conquered death, then they all have a problem. It's their destruction. And it's a kingdom of righteousness. It's a stone. There's no iron mixed with clay here. It's not simply even made out of metals that man mines out of the ground. This is... God's work, established on God's righteousness, operating by God's wisdom and God's power. That's all that's being represented there. And it represents also the rise and development of His kingdom with Him as God's King after His death and resurrection. There's a second phase. And we even recognize that. What happens? The stone is formed. There it is. What happens? It starts to move. It starts to come. It starts to roll down the mountain. Do you, do you think sometime when you, when you think about what Christ is doing, that He's doing nothing? That nothing's happening? Nothing going on? When you think of Him returning on the clouds of heaven, do you just think of Him just showing up like He hasn't been doing anything? No. This dream is showing what's going on. This is what occurs during the final development of that image with the feet of clay and of iron. It's what's going on right now. It's what's going on in the New Testament. We should look and say the stone is coming. He's rolling down the mountain from heaven to destroy this great kingdom of man. You say, how is He doing that? Well, through the signs the Scriptures say of His coming. There's going to be more than that in the book of Daniel too. The signs He's coming. Those signs are His judgment. He's coming in those judgments against the sins of men as they develop. He's coming in the famine and the disease and the earthquake and the war. Just think of all the wars that have gone on. Think of how they're increasing in intensity and power and the number of people killed. Millions and millions and millions. Unbelievable millions. I think the Russians lost 20 million in World War II and I might be a low figure. 
You say, why is that? Well, what started it? Greed, envy, jealousy. What made it so bad? Development of power. Now, who's sovereign over that? Was it Hitler and Stalin and Roosevelt? No, it was Christ. You see, He's sovereign over it all. He's coming not only through all that, but even more importantly, He's coming in a way that man does not expect. He doesn't see coming. He doesn't understand what's going on. And that's He's coming through the foolishness of preaching. Remember the Word of God that we heard for our call to worship? The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Now that's talking about His place in the church and how even the rulers of the church rejected Him. But notice, He's described there as a stone. And the Word is described as a stone that breaks in part the hard heart. And you ask, how is He coming? Where is His kingdom? Where are the members? How does it all happen? Lord's Supper. Preaching. Look at how man makes his kingdom. Look how man rules. Look at the glory of his kingdom and what it's all about. Man has to enlist sports and fill stadiums and spend oodles of money. He has to make nuclear weapons and tanks. He has to hold talks and packs and make peace treaties and everything. Look at all that's going on with man. What does Christ do? Takes a preacher, sends him out, tells him to expound his word. That word goes forth. It's a word actually that humbles man, that damns man, that condemns man. And it goes forth and exalts God. And that word enters into the hardest of hearts and just smashes them to pieces. He's gathered one into his church. And then another. You ask, how does he support the members of his kingdom? How does he do that? What's going on? And again, you look at what he's using. He uses a bunch of elders with full-time jobs. The members of the church. Paul says, have you ever looked at them? They're not the mighty, the glorious, the powerful in the world. They're the weak. They're the rejects. They're the people that nobody wants. Christ says, they're mine. Look what we ate. In Christ's kingdom, that's what you eat. That's all you eat. You eat the Word of God and you eat the sacrament. But in that, Christ comes. In that, that stone is coming, smashing. And then lastly, that's the phase. There's his bodily appearance. All of a sudden, there he is at the end of time. And to establish now a kingdom that becomes a mountain in the earth that is his kingdom of righteousness in a new heavens and earth where those other kings and kingdoms and all the glory and honor of man is obliterated. It's gone. It disappears. It's a kingdom over the whole earth that encompasses members from all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. It's a rule over beasts too. But it's a righteous rule where sin is banished. Death is gone. Everything that man tried to do, that man tried to get done, through all his ingenuity, all his technology, all of his wars and everything, all that he has been trying to do, Christ does through his word and spirit. Obviously, it's the greatest power and glory, which is why Nebuchadnezzar was shaking in his boots. But there's specific significance here. This passage teaches that God is the supreme king over all these kings and their kingdoms. They didn't rise to power and glory by themselves. We read even in verse 31 that God is the one who gave them their kingdom, gave them their power and their glory. It is His to give. That power, that authority that Nebuchadnezzar is flashing, it came from God. God is the one who sent them all those counselors and made Daniel and his three friends one of them. And it, we read it's God's power to take it away and to give to another. It's God building that statue. Man thinks he's building it, but God is controlling it all. He's making sure that Nebuchadnezzar is the glorious kingdom and so on and so forth so that it's all done this way. He's sovereign over the whole business. He takes them up. He sets them down. That's verses 37-39. He's the one who's establishing that final kingdom of Christ through that stone that lasts forever and ever and shall never be destroyed. The meaning is clear. God is the one who cuts him out without hands. God is the one who sends him rolling toward that statue 
that He sovereignly controlled is towering in the earth as a threat and a rival. He's the one that smashes it to pieces. We have to note that the endurance of that kingdom is due to two facts. It's the kingdom of God, not man. Well, that kingdom includes men, make no mistake. That's impossible to miss. But you notice that stone? That stone that comes from the mountain? That stone that is Christ doesn't look like a man, does it? We know it's a man, but he's much more. And when that stone starts to grow and to develop, is it a, is it a, a kingdom that starts to take on the appearance of a man and look like a man? No, a mountain. A mountain of stone. That is, this king and his kingdom and the members of his kingdom and the men that belong to his kingdom are transformed into his image as opposed to the kingdom of man which takes God and transforms him to man's image. God takes God, the image of God, takes the revelation of God and turns it into the image of four-footed beasts and creatures and like man himself. Christ is exactly the opposite. His kingdom develops by transforming men into his image. So it's a kingdom of God and not man. That means the glory, the strength, the influence is God. The one true God. The knowledge of the kingdom is the knowledge of God. Secondly, the development of that kingdom is not left to any man or other people to accomplish. We read of that in verse 44. It's the king who sets it up. It's the king who establishes it. Lastly, and finally, to talk about the certainty that this comes to pass because that's a focus in the passage. Verse 45, the dream and its interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know that, are certain and sure. You're not going to stop this from happening. You're not going to prevent it. There's nothing you can do about it. That's evident in the passage because it's God who gives the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. It's God who gives the interpretation. It's God who disturbs him with fear. It's God who gives to Daniel the knowledge. Even Daniel acknowledges it. The king acknowledges it. Your God did this. I see that. There's no man that can do what you just did. The certainty of that it's going to come to pass is the fact that God has, and this is what we can see, brought to pass every single detail in that dream. You cannot miss it. You'd have to be blind to miss it. And if you say, well, we don't really know. It sounds like your interpretation. Then just jump ahead in the book where these, where these dreams and these kinds of things are identified. Now, who can make that happen? Not man. God did. So we can especially be sure that that aspect of Christ, the dream depicting Christ, will certainly come to pass. He is coming. Never mind what things look like. Never mind what it seems like. He is coming, and He is destroying the kingdom of man. What's the significance of that? This, very plainly, very quickly, just like Nebuchadnezzar was terrified, terrified with fear by his nightmare, so this same nightmare is of great comfort for the people of God. That's what it is. That's what it's supposed to be. It proves, it sets forth, it calls you to believe in God's power and wisdom to preserve His church. And as we're going to see, keep His church from defilement in the antithetical life. And that's especially comforting in these last days. These days that shall come to pass, as we're told, will happen. The king is going to reward Nebuchadnezzar, or reward Daniel and his three friends, set them up in high places. God does the same thing. The whole point of all this is that God's people are rewarded with comfort. There's knowledge and understanding that God gives. Part of it is they lose their interest in all that gold and silver. I can about imagine how Daniel reacted to it. What was his interest? Well, it's the same as yours. You have this revelation of this great secret from God before you tonight, just like Daniel did. And you say, I can't wait. I love to see it happen. I love to see it develop. And I long for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Thy Word of truth, Thy Word of comfort, this Word even about the future, future which has yet to come to pass, but we know certainly will. We thank Thee for faith, for giving our faith hope, and for letting that hope not ever be disappointed because our Lord and King is Jesus who rules over all. In His name we pray, amen.